0: Well, good afternoon, listeners. Here we are on the 3CR community radio and we are the DOGS program, the Australian Council for Defence and Government Schools. And we've been here since 1987, defending and promoting public education. Just to remind you, that's public education, which is public in purpose and outcome. It's also public in ownership and control. But above all, it is public in access. It is open to all children, all teachers and all cleaners or whoever else is employed in the education uh, faculty, faculties or um, in the education enterprise, whatever you want to call it. But um, it doesn't discriminate. That is the important thing about public education. Because it should be owned and controlled, uh, it should also be the only one that is uh, publicly funded because it's the only one that's publicly accountable. We've been hearing again and again about that strange man, Archbishop or Cardinal Pell, uh, and his system. And uh, one, you can you can take what you want from all of that, but fortunately for us, it doesn't matter because in the public system. None of that matters. There is no discrimination and no worries. Our children are safe from religious people. But um, we are going to give you something today which you might consider a little bit out of the date, Accepting that it's not. It was written in 2020 about the Morrison government and the problem is that although we've had a change of government, we now have Mr. Albanese and Jason Clare and all these wonderful people in Canberra. As far as the funding of education is concerned, nothing has changed. So, we'd like to remind you about what is actually still going on. And here is Kimberly to do it. Over to you, Kimberly.
1: Thanks, Jean. Yeah, so this article is from January of 2020. It was written by Tom Greenwell and it's titled Less Choice, Less Affordability, The Private School Subsidy Paradox. Just weeks after he became Prime Minister in August 2018, Scott Morrison announced an additional $4.6 billion in federal funding for non-government schools. Our government believes that parents should have a choice in education, he explained. The policies that we pursue as a government are about ensuring choice for parents. Just in case anyone missed the message, the extra cash was branded as the Choice and Affordability Fund. As marketing, Morrison's line may have worked. As public policy, it simply doubled down on what was already an abject failure. Over the past 20 years, the Commonwealth has massively ramped up funding for non-government schools, and still every summer, as reliably as Christmas and the Boxing Day test, reports of steep increases in private school fees surfaced in the nation's newspapers, along with stories of parents struggling to cope and principals struggling to explain. Now, figures from the My School website encompassing every school in Australia and incorporating all sources of revenue confirm what the anecdotal evidence has long suggested. The data for the seven years from 2011 to 2017 collected and published by the Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority reveals the sheer scale of the expansion of government funding to non-government schools. For context, between 2011 and 2017, inflation averaged 1.9% annually, compounding to 12%. Over the same period, recurrent government funding to non-government schools increased by around three times as much, with an average per student increase of 37% at independent schools and 35% at Catholic schools. Funding to state schools grew by just 18% per student. Despite the huge boost in public funding, private schools didn't reduce their fees. In fact, the price of entry continued to rise rapidly. Between 2011 and 2017, the average tuition fee at non-government schools grew from $3,600 to $4,700. By 2017, fees averaged $2,290 at primary schools $5,700 at secondary level, and $8,560 at combined K-12 schools. Private schools, principals, and lobbyists often point to rising costs, but this increase equates to an average annual hike in tuition fees of 4.5%, more than twice the rate of inflation. What this makes clear is that more public spending on private schools has not put downward pressure on fees. It has merely compounded the resource advantage enjoyed by those who can afford a private school education. Net recurrent income per student increased by 29% to just under $20,000 at independent schools and by 33% to more than $16,000 at Catholic schools. When the Howard government presided over a substantial increase in federal funding to non-government schools at the start of this century, John Howard went on Melbourne Radio to predict that fees would soon fall as a result. The headmasters of Scotch College and Wesley College confirmed that fee cuts were imminent, and the Executive Director of the Independent Schools Council disclosed that many schools were poised to move very quickly to reduce costs to parents. Howard's Lieutenant Education Minister David Kemp claimed that the new arrangements will particularly extend extend choice to low-income families. Choice in schooling is now a reality for working-class Australian families, Minister Kemp told Parliament. Two decades Hmm. later, the My School data reveals a very different story. Far from making school choice a reality for low-income families, the policies pursued by Dr Kemp and his successors have had the opposite effect. In 2018, 36% of students at public schools came from the most disadvantaged quartile of Australian society. Only 17% of students at Catholic schools came from the same group. The proportion of very disadvantaged kids at independent schools was even less at just 14%. In August, Haleybury College in Melbourne was identified by the ABC as one of the four richest schools in Australia, which together managed to spend more on new facilities than Australia's poorest 1,800 schools combined. Haley Berry clocked up over $100 million in capital expenditure between 2013 and 2017. At the same time, it enjoyed nearly 40% growth in recurrent Commonwealth funding, an increase from $4,300 to $6,000 per student per year. Haley Berry didn't use the additional public funding to extend choice to low-income families, it increased its fees from $18,700 in 2011 to $22,700 in 2017. <clears throat> Unsurprisingly, the already small poll proportion of kids from disadvantaged families at Hayley shrank even further. The proportion of children from the bottom half of the Australian population, according to income and educational attainment, collapsed from 16% to 5% in just seven years. Hayley might not be a typical non-government school, but it is representative of the national trend The same pattern of rapid fee rises, declining enrolments from low-income families, and substantial growth in taxpayer funding replicates itself throughout towns and suburbs across the country. Exactly the same dynamic can be found at St Bede's College in the Melbourne Bayside suburb of Menton, or at St Gregory's College in Campbelltown, or at Ignatius Park College in Toowoomba, suburb of Cranbrook. In all of these schools fees increased despite steady increases in government funding and the proportion of students from Australia's most disadvantaged families decreased by half or more. It may once have been plausible to claim that more public funding would improve choice and affordability. Today such assertions amount to a refusal to face reality or worse an attempt to obscure it. Federal governments have been conducting this experiment for two decades and the results speak for themselves. 20 what is, years it about what is it, I'm sorry to
0: interrupt, but what is it about Australian politics? They talk in, in opposites. The, mm. the rhetoric is the opposite to reality again and again and again. They must think that we're absolute fools yeah. to talk about choice and affordability when, in fact, uh, these schools are so greedy that they just keep putting up their fees. Extraordinary, isn't it? Sorry to interrupt
1: you, Kim. That's okay, Jean. I'll I'll keep going. Um, 20 years since John Howard declared that private school fees would fall, we are still waiting. Government (laughs) funding has increased so much that non-government schools now enjoy similar public funding to state schools. By 2017, Catholic schools received, on average, annual government funding of $13,000 per student, while independent schools received around $11,000 per student. That's 81% and 69% respectively of the average per student funding that goes to state schools. The difference narrows even further when we account for the much larger share of expensive to educate students at state schools, such as kids in rural and remote locations and children with disabilities or from other disadvantaged groups. Comparing like with like, non-government schools receive about 90 to 95% of the public funding that government schools do and yet fees continue to rise rapidly. Why don't private schools cut their fees in response to this ever-growing taxpayer contribution? The most like, important reason is very simple. They don't have to. Education is not like many other products in the marketplace. Price is seen as a signal of quality. Exclusivity is often a selling point, and the uncertainty and anxiety surrounding our children's well-being leads parents to grin and bear high fees And even wear them as a badge of honour and cutting fees generally could let in a greater number of disadvantaged students who are typically more expensive to educate so there's rarely a business case for cutting fees fee reduction and improved affordability won't happen until governments require it by imposing caps on fees demanding a minimum number of scholarships or creating an obligation to enroll local students for instance If we really want to improve choice, it's not enough just to keep handing over more taxpayer dollars. Non-government schools have to assume public obligations that are commensurate with the public funding they receive. In Australia, the New South Wales Secondary Principals Council has proposed a public charter that would establish a common regulatory environment for all schools in receipt of public funding. There are plenty plenty of models to draw on. Church schools are part of public systems in Canada, Britain, the Netherlands and other European countries. In New Zealand, religious schools were integrated into the state system over four decades ago. We could draw on these examples to expand genuine school choice while balancing it with other imperatives like equity, quality, efficiency and social cohesion. It's possible to create free, inclusive schools that also reflect a variety of different worldviews. But first, we need a government that really believes in choice in education for all and not just for some. Back to you, Jen.
0: Well, thank you very much. Of course, the dog's position is that this all started back in 1964 when they introduced state aid for private schools. Now the private schools are getting more than the public schools. The economic argument doesn't apply. They're costing us more. The time has come to take them over or tell them to be genuinely independent because the only thing you can say about the needs policy, and Tom Greenwell, who wrote that article, still believes that somehow we can still have needs policy and keep these schools. Um, The only way they know how to to deal with it is to get more and more greedy. Um, The needs policy long since became the Greeds Policy. The state aid experiment has failed. It failed in the 19th century and it's failed in the 20th and 21st century. It's time to go back to the no state aid position and have all of the schools that are publicly funded, publicly accessible and publicly owned. But uh, we'll have a break there. And uh, Dale has got some very interesting up-to-date news about the fees being charged by these private schools that are, well, really, they are public schools that are discriminating against children. That's what they are. That are privately owned. But we'll have a break, and Dale will be telling us more about that.
1: It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason for screaming out. Where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the constitution for that. You know, that's why Free CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not. You know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got. But it's
2: all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377.
3: Join me as your cry with Ubuntu voices, Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African-Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu voices free. every Wednesday at 830 pm.
4: None of us are free, of us, are free. One of us is chain. none of us are free.
0: Well, in the last week, the whole question of private school fees going up again has broken in the press, in The Age, and also in the uh, Herald uh, Sun, oh, Herald, sorry, uh, up up in uh, Sydney. But Dale has got the Victorian news. Over to you,
3: Dale. Thanks, Jean. The article is from The Age by Nicole Preasel and Adam Carey. It's titled, Victorian private school fee increases are the biggest in five years. Parents will be hit with the biggest average private school fee increase in five years, with 20 schools now charging more than $35,000 a year for tuition. The fee hikes, which range from 4% to 10%, come despite many of the state's leading private schools reporting healthy surpluses and families already under strain from big cost of living increases. For the first time, two schools will charge more than $40,000 a year for senior school students. The fee increase has at least one academic calling for caps on price rises, some parents reconsidering sending their children to private education, and has also been criticised as nothing more than a grab for status. Geelong Grammar, Victoria's most expensive school, has raised its fees by 5.4% to $46,020 for year 12 day boarding students. It's the sharpest increase the school has had in the past five years after it froze its fees for a year in 2021 at $41,792. Jewish Day School, Mount Scopus Memorial College, raised its fees to $40,860 this year from 38,960 in 2022. Mid-fee schools have followed suit with Bacchus Marsh Grammar and Ballarat Clarendon College raising fees by about 5%. Education payment provider EdStart Start reported the last time the average increase reached 4% was in 2018. There was a 3.68% rise in 2019, a uh, 3% rise in 2020 and a drop to an average 0.4% rise in 2021 as schools implemented price freezes due to the pandemic. They began rising last year again to 2.9%. Victoria's 23 highest fee schools reported a combined surplus of about $127 million in 2021. Analysis of their reports to the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission revealed, non-government schools are exempt from paying income tax, but under rules for the government funding they also receive, must use surplus funds for educational purposes. Australia's in annual inflation rate rose to 7.3% in November, its highest rate since 1990, even as school education costs remain static, rising just 0.7%, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. A Glenn Huntley mother of three who wished to remain anonymous, sends her daughter to Mount Scopus Memorial College for PrEP, but has opted to remove her two primary school aged sons due to the cost. She said private school was becoming more and more unaffordable for most people and parents were reconsidering because of combined cost of living and fee increases. One person's wage entirely needs to go to school fees. The other one pays the mortgage and bills, etc. She said, it makes no sense. Why can a public school be under $1,000 a year for primary and private is $23,000 to $25,000? Another mother who sent her four sons to St. Kevin's College and a daughter to Star of the Sea College said she'd be happy with the fee increases if she knew 100% of it went into the pockets of teachers. Comparison website Finders. Parenting Report 2023 surveyed 1,032 parents of children under 12 and found 17% were contemplating moving their child from a private school to a public school to reduce their expenses. In Victoria, 8% had already made the switch and 19% were considering it. Deakin University ed- Senior Education Lecturer Emma Rowe said there was nothing capping private school fees in Australia and that schools increase their fees because they could. Education is very closely linked to social mobility in society. It's crazy we don't have any controls or caps on fees and it's crazy parents don't demand it, she said. I think people should think harder about the broader implications on society and social inequality. Education economist Adam Roris said schools weren't raising their fees because they needed the money for students. What these schools were mostly selling is status, he said. It is schooling as a positional good, and if they don't raise their fees, their status goes down. It's dreary and it's tawdry because at the same time as they raise more money than they can spend, they refuse to relinquish government money badly needed by public schools. Independent Schools Victoria Chief Executive Michelle Green said fees charged by independent schools varied widely to reflect the diversity of their programs, facilities and resources. In setting fees, all of these schools are conscious of the financial sacrifices parents make When choosing a school that best meets the needs of their children, she said. Over the past three years, schools have made considerable efforts to either freeze fees or apply modest increases in light of the impact of COVID 19 restrictions on family incomes and school operations. She said schools took teachers' salaries, which were the largest component of school operating expenses, into account when setting fees. Mount Scopus Memorial College Principal Rabbi James, James Kennard said their fee increase was due to rising costs, the consequence of low or zero increases during the pandemic, and that extensive assistance was available in cases of financial need. Higher inflation, operating and maintenance costs were also a factor in fee increases, said Ed Stark Chief. Executive Officer Jack Stevens, who had seen the number of students using their education payment business triple in the past 12 months. Since 1970 to 2021, the independent school sector has grown from 4% to 17% of Australia's student share, from 114,000 to 670,000 students according to Independent Schools Australia. Paul O'Shaughnessy, an education consultant with Regent Consulting, said many families were relatively sanguine about fee rises this year after two years of COVID-driven fee freezes. When it's going up just a little over half of CPI, it's hard to see it as unreasonable, he said. Though some families might be struggling with the higher cost of living, Most who send their children to non-government schools would make other sacrifices. If anything, it's the last thing parents will change because it's their kids and it's their friendship groups. People find a way. They give up other things, like a holiday, because this is prioritised. Back to you, Jean. Well, it's
0: more and more of the same, isn't it? It's not needs, it's greeds. And my my take on it is that these private schools are raising their fees so that they can buy the good teachers out of the public system because there's a shortage of teachers all around the country. And um, this was all predictable. It's all predictable. And uh, the dogs can only say, we told you so. But thank you, Dale. We'll now have a bit of a, a break and we'll get back with some interesting news from Finland. had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government.
5: proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries
0: in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools
1: in the world. It's still not good enough that kids with disability
3: miss out.
4: Our education is not for profit. Our education
3: is not for profit. You're listening to The Dogs, the Defence of Government Schools on 3CR.
0: Well, uh, we've been listening to the uh, articles about private school fees and their discriminatory practices. But now we've got some interesting news from Finland. How many of us have children and grandchildren that spend such a lot of time on their phones or on their computers where there is a lot of disinformation wandering about the world? Finland's trying to do something about it. Sorrel's going to tell us about (laughs) that. Over to you, Sorrel.
2: Thanks, Jean. So this article is How Finland Teaches Kids to Spot Misinformation by Jenny Gross. A typical lesson that Sara Martika, a teacher in Hamim Lina, Finland, gives her students goes like this. She presents her eighth, eighth graders with news articles. Together they discuss what's the purpose of this article? How and when was it written? What are the author's central claims? Just because it's a good thing or a nice thing doesn't mean it's true or valid, she says. In a class last month, she showed students three TikTok videos and they discussed the creator's motivations and the effect that the videos had on them. In Finland, 76% of people consider print and digital newspapers to be reliable. Her goal, like that of teachers around Finland, is to help students learn to identify false information. Finland ranked number one of 41 European countries on resilience against misinformation for the fifth time in a row in a survey published in October by George Soros-founded Open Society Foundations in Sofia, Bulgaria. Officials say Finland's success is not just the result of its strong education system, which is one of the best in the world, but also because of the concerted effort to teach students about fake news. Media literacy is part of the national core curriculum starting in preschool. After Finland, the European countries that ranked highest for resilience to misinformation in the Open Society Foundation's survey were Norway, Denmark, Estonia, Ireland and Sweden. The countries that were most vulnerable to misinformation were Georgia, North Macedonia, Kosovo, sorry, Kosovo, Bosnia and Herzegovina and Albania. The survey results were calculated based on scores for press freedom, the level of trust in society and scores in reading, science and math. The United States was not included in the survey But other polls show that misinformation and disinformation have become more prevalent since 2016, and that Americans' trust in the news media is near a record low. A survey by Gallup published in October found that just 34% of Americans trusted the mass media to report the news fully, accurately and fairly, slightly higher than the lowest number that the organization reported in 2016. In Finland, 76% of Finns consider print and digital newspapers to be reliable, according to an August survey commissioned by a trade group representing Finnish newspapers that was conducted by the IRO Research, a market research company. And this article was originally published in the New York Times. Back over to you, Jean.
0: Well, thank you very much. Very interesting, isn't it? Because um, our children are growing up into a very, very interesting world. Uh, well, of course, here on 3CR, you're not going to get misinformation. That's why we're here. And certainly here on the education, department, uh, education program, you're going to get the information that we can give you to the best of our ability. But uh, we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back to how a school in Bondi is ending the Great Lesson Lottery. Again, Sorrel is going to bring this to us.
1: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live.
3: Panoply. only on 3CR 855 AM digital and
4: 3CR.org.au.
0: Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program, and uh, we hope that uh, you're still with us and enjoying us as you uh, allow us into your life for this period of time on a Saturday afternoon. And Sorrel is going to tell us a good news story, if you like, how up there in New South Wales, a school in Bondi is uh, doing some very interesting things indeed. Over to you, Sorrel.
2: Thanks, Jean. So this article is by Julie Hare, and she is writing about how a school in Bondi is ending the Great Lesson Lottery. Teachers at Bondi Public School will have an extra three hours per week to dedicate to their students when the new academic year begins, says Principal Natalia Gregoric. The extra time will be made available thanks to a new centralized learning resources hub that will save teachers from scouring the Internet in a hit or miss quest of finding materials to make their lessons more engaging and educational. Bondi public school principal Natalia Gregoric says teachers now have more time to spend educating students. It takes much of the guesswork out of finding the right resources by teachers in their own time, said Ms. Gregoric, who has been principal at Bondi since the beginning of 2021. It means teachers are using quality materials that are linked to our strategic direction, she says. It has been estimated that such resource hubs can save each teacher at least three hours a week. With 22 classes, that means freeing up a minimum of 66 hours a week, or more than 2,500 hours in the school year to put to more productive use. The hub has been adopted by over 90% of schools in New South Wales. For example, if students in years five and six are learning about fractions, The hub provides a sequence of activities that prod students to be able to identify the denominator, find the numerator, and be able to express the problem in various ways. They can then draw diagrams expressing statements such as a quarter of my backyard is covered in mud or she drove two thirds of the way home. Then students can be asked to solve a series of visual problems and answer questions such as David bought a box of 24 oranges from the markets on the weekend. After a week, he noticed that two-thirds of the oranges were rotten and threw them away. How many oranges did he have left? Teachers are also provided with prompts in ways to discuss how the correct answers were arrived at. Numerous reports in the past year have pointed to lackluster academic performance amongst Australian school children, despite ever-rising government spending. While the achievement gap between rich and poor gets ever wider, teachers find themselves overstretched, under-supported, and often overwhelmed by the enormity of their jobs. A report from the Productivity Commission last year said the single most important element to improving Australia's underachievement was to improve teacher effectiveness. The Grattan Institute has repeatedly called for resource hubs similar to the one now available to the leadership and teaching staff at Bondi Public School and across the state. Grattan surveyed thousands of teachers and found that 86% said they did not have enough time for high-quality lesson planning. Only 15% said they had access to a common bank of high-quality curriculum materials for their classes. The figure was lower, the more disadvantaged the school. Ms. Gregorick says the new hub, along with the appointment of an assistant principal for curriculum and instruction who will oversee the strategic adoption of these materials would deliver results. With the school's focus on improving numeracy, she is hopeful there will be visible signs of improvement as early as this year. She's part of the leadership team and will be working shoulder-to-shoulder with teachers to ensure they are using quality assured materials, Ms. Gregorick said. The New South Wales Education Department has created a raft of materials designed to rid school executives and teaching staff of unproductive work. Initiatives to better enable leadership in New South Wales public schools are making the business of education more effective giving principals more time to support learning. The New South Wales Education Secretary, Georgina Harrison, said the complexity of schools' many competing priorities meant key staff, especially principals, were often engaged in tasks unrelated to educational leadership. Schools may have 100 or more staff and an operating budget of several million dollars, Ms Harrison said. However, the CEO of the business, the principal, is heavily involved with complex stakeholders, including students, their families and local communities, as well as the core business of providing educational leadership as well as teaching classes for some. And they need to do this on top of the job of making sure the school is running well dealing with issues like budgets, building and grounds maintenance, compliance with reporting, work, health and safety responsibilities, as well as staff management. Feedback from principals revealed they want to spend less time on administrative duties, so they had more time providing leadership and the duty of care to their students and staff. We want the time our teachers and instructional leaders spend outside the classroom to be quality time that supports improved school operations and student outcomes, Ms. Harrison said. As the Cretan Institute has noted, the provision of practical guidance and the time-saving teaching resources will not only improve the quality of what is being taught in individual classrooms, but reduce the variability of what is taught across the nation's classrooms. That is a good news story for those teachers across Australia and especially New South Wales. Um, Back over to you, Jean.
0: Yes, thank you very much. Um, I think it brings out just how much a principal has to do, and of course large numbers of people are resigning or else they're not taking up principalship positions. Uh, principals or teachers want to be educators not administrators but um, we'll have a bit of a break and we'll go over to America and England with Jeff and Dale looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription you can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. You're still listening to the Dogs Programme, I hope. And here we've got another voice for you, Jeff, our roaming expert on international affairs. And uh, he's discovered that there's perhaps a good news story about vouchers over in America, but a not so good news story about having to bring up children in the UK. Over to you, Jeff.
5: Thanks, Jean. And as usual, we're we're tuning into our wonderful. Blog by Dana Ravich over in the United States who keeps a firm eye on public education there. And she has published an article on the 14th of January. And it is, Michigan, same groups push voucher bill, voter restriction bill, both fail to get on ballot. This is a really good news story. This is where uh, people have seen through the um, the horrible ideas of the conservatives in the United States to have voucher systems to support p- private schools and religious schools. And so the article goes on. In Michigan, conservative groups tried to get two initiatives on the ballot in 2022 but did not file enough valid signatures in time. The same consultants promoted both propositions. Betsy DeVos poured millions into the voucher campaign in the hopes of getting it passed by Republican legislature and avoiding a referendum. In a previous referendum, Michigan voters overwhelmingly rejected vouchers for private and religious schools. Democrats won control of both houses of the legislature in 2022, so that idea is dead for now. Beth LeBlanc of the Detroit News reported, conservative groups last month abandoned their efforts to pass... Voter-initiated laws seeking to create stricter voter identification rules and a tax incentivized scholarship fund in Michigan that could be used for private school education. Yeah, the demise of the Let MI Kids Learn, MI meaning Michigan, so... Uh, The demise of the Let Michigan Kids Learn ballot initiative serves as a blow to the West Michigan family of former U.S. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, the Republican megadonor who helped to launch the effort to create a tax incentive that would would finance private school scholarships for students whose parents could not afford the tuition. Members of the DeVos family contributed roughly $7.9 million towards the Let Michigan Kids Learn Ballot initiative in 2021 and 2022, making up the lion's share of the financing for the effort, according to the state ki- uh, campaign finance records. The end of the Let Michigan Kids Learn Ballot initiative marks a major victory for public school students, parents and educators, said Cassandra Ulbrick, a spokesperson for an opposition group called For Michigan Kids, For Michigan schools, the the secure Michigan vote initiative, which is also pulled, was also pulled on the 28th of December, had largely been rendered irrelevant by the November passage of Proposal 2, which cemented the Michigan Constitution voting rules that secure Michigan vote sought to change in statute, said Jamie Rowe, spokesman for the secure Michigan vote effort and a Republican political consultant. The fact that Gretchen Whitmer won re-election must be driving the devilish DeVos to tears while she sits on one of her yachts in Florida. Maybe the exposed plot to try to kidnap the governor woke up voters in Michigan, so they are less likely to support extremism and anarchy. Perhaps more voters are seeing through the MAGA fog and the Proud Boys are retreating to their caves in Michigan. Whatever the reason, let's hope this is a recurring trend elsewhere. As long as there are conservative extreme right billionaires like beastly Betsy DeVos and Alec, A L E C, I think she is a Jews paying member of this seditious enemy of freedom and democracy, uh, vouchers, charter schools, and voter restriction legislation will not go away. Billionaires are similar to countries. They have the money to launch organizations and hire a staff to handle that dark money. Those employees want to keep their jobs, and extremist billionaires like Betsley. Beastly Betsy doesn't have to do the work. All she has to do is pay her minions to do it for her, sort of like funding a luxurious toxic hobby that hurts others but doesn't touch them. And so that's a bit of good news is that they've seen through this toxic uh, far-right extremism that's masquerading as a, a benevolent fund to help children go to school. It's actually defunding public school education all over America. So that's a win for public schooling and parents everywhere. Now we're going to nip across the ditch again, the other ditch, and go to the UK where there's an Observer editorial uh, without uh, anyone particularly um, penning it. It's from the Observer itself. And it's uh, it says, the Observer view on how the UK has become a hostile place to have children. Parents are being forced to bring up their offspring in conditions that will have grave repercussions for society. This is, of course, in the UK. It takes a village to raise a child, according to the old proverb. That may have little meaning for the majority of parents today. But the proper place for institutions outside the family in the birth and rearing of our children is a pressing matter indeed and recent evidence suggests that government is grievously failing parents in many ways. It starts even before birth. A new report out last week from the Care Quality Commission, CQC, highlighted a worrying decline in women's experiences of the NHS maternity services in England. The trend comes in on the wake of a number of inquiries into the appallingly poor maternity care on offer in some hospital trusts. It's estimated that more than 1,000 babies die or are left with severe injuries each year as a result of something going wrong during labour, and the CQC has found four in 10 maternity services are providing unacceptable levels of care. This goes beyond the general resourcing and staffing issues within the NHS that have created its biggest ever crisis. It reflects a cultural underprioritisation of the care of women and their babies that has not been adequately addressed by successive administrations. Government policy has also marked uh, uh, had a marked influence on the context within which parents bring up their children, how expensive it is to have a child, the level of support on offer when things go wrong, and in this case... And and the ease with which you can juggle looking after your child while maintaining a career. And as a result of political decisions over the last decade, Britain has undoubtedly become a more hostile place to bring up a family. Rising energy and food bills have pushed up the already high cost of raising a child to the age of 18 even further. The Child Poverty Action Group has estimated the average figure is now £160,000 for couples and £200,000 for lone parents. Even if both parents work full-time at the minimum wage, they will fall more than £1,700 a year short of the income needed to attain a basic minimum standard of living. This This reflects the fact that as wages have stagnated over the last decade the cost of living including housing food and energy has increased and the government support for low paid parents has been significantly scaled back since 2010. Britain has too many jobs that simply do not pay enough for parents to be able to provide for their children. Successive conservative chancellors have reduced tax credits and benefits for low-income families with children, while introducing tax cuts that have benefited the better off. A redistribution not just from the less to the more affluent, but from families with children to those without. This has undermined the financial safety net that was put in place for families by the last Labour government, in recognition of the fact that Britain has has too many jobs that simply do not pay enough for parents to be able to provide for their children. Little wonder then that child poverty rates have risen since 2010, with almost one in three children now living in poverty. Long term issues in the housing market have also introduced much greater uncertainty in relation to raising children. Rising house prices mean more parents will never be able to afford to buy their own home. One in five households now live in privately rented accommodation, up from one in 10, 20 years ago the proportion will continue to rise with more children being brought up in rented houses. This this not only has a huge impact on living standards, Britain has the most expensive rents in Europe, but on safety and security. A quarter of homes in the private rented sector do not meet the government's minimum decent homes criteria. Also, renters remain vulnerable to short-term tenancy agreements, at the end of which they can be kicked out of their homes, sometimes necessitating a move and a change of school. The growing numbers of parents who rent deserve to be able to achieve much greater stability for their children through controlled rents and long-term tenancies. The other huge financial outlay for parents is childcare, particularly for young children not yet at school. New figures out this month show Britain now has the joint highest childcare costs of any OECD country. Government support with these costs is patchy, and it is hardest to access quality nursery provision in the least affluent areas. Yet high quality childcare provision is associated with better educational outcomes, particularly for children from disadvantaged backgrounds, higher levels of parental well-being, and better economic outcomes for women. Modelling by the Institute of Public Policy Research suggests that investing in universal free childcare for under fives would boost economic growth and result in a higher tax take. The decision about whether and when To have children is deeply personal, but the high costs involved and the increasingly anti-family sheen of the government policy mean that many parents cannot give their children the level of security they aspire to, affecting the rest of their lives. It is also likely to put people off having children with wider consequences for the whole of society, given the higher tax burden that Britain's low birth rate will impose on future generations. The government's neglect of children and families, has profound repercussions, not only for the kind of society we are today, but for what we will become in the future. That's an excellent editorial from The Observer, and it really does highlight the shift that's happened in in the UK under the Tories and uh, how they're favouring the the wealthy and the well-to-do over people who are struggling. Same pattern everywhere. Anyway, thank you for that, uh, uh, your time, and pass you back to Jean.
0: Well, thank you very much, Jeff, for that international news. And now, of course, we always end on a positive note. Over to Dale and the Great State School of the
3: Week. And this week's Great State School of the Week is Pailong Primary School. Now, here's a message from their principal. Uh, established in 1878 Pyelong Primary School is an inclusive and supportive government education setting for 67 students from foundation to year six. The school is situated at 10 to 14 Burke Street, Pyelong, a rural area in central Victoria, 80 kilometres north of Melbourne. The school is set in expansive grounds of approximately 7.4 acres with an oval, playgrounds, cricket nets, netball court and cottage gardens. Environmental projects include the kitchen garden area, chook shed, composting stations, and orchard. We have supportive parents, families, and community groups who contribute to the well-being of the school by assisting with the maintenance of the grounds, classroom programs, whole school activities, and the Stephanie Alexander kitchen garden program. The Pailong Parents Club are a committed group of parents who organise and run several fundraising events throughout the year, including events such as stalls, barbecues and their annual colour run. They're committed to the well-being of all members of their school community and promote positive relationships through cooperation, mutual trust, respect for diversity and inclusion for all. Their students have the opportunity to work with specialist art, library and music teachers on a weekly basis through the mobile art and library programs. They strive to provide a safe, calm and orderly learning environment where students feel supported and are encouraged to reach their full potential. In 2018, they began the process of upskilling and retraining as a school-wide positive behaviour school. The SWPBS framework underpins the social-emotional learning program for the school, along with the Respectful Relationships Initiative. The school recently modified its values to reflect the school-wide expectations of be kind, be safe and be your best. The school implements a whole school consistent approach to teaching literacy and numeracy with the provision of a curriculum that is differentiated to suit the learning needs of the students, and additional support is offered through intervention programs. Quality planning and assessment practices are a high priority. The school is committed to ongoing implementation of information and communication technologies and utility utilises iPads, notebooks and desktop computers, complemented by large interactive televisions in each classroom. Pailon Primary School provides an outside school hours care service that's open from 7am to 9am and 3.30pm to 6pm daily, providing care in a caring environment that supports the school's learning and values program while valuing and supporting students' interests during their leisure time. Now, some facts and figures. The school has 88 students. The Ixia value of the school is 1,003, which is just above the average of 1,000. 9% have parents from the upper 25% of income. in the second highest quartile, 42% from the third quartile and 28% from the poorest 25% of the community. 1% of the pupils speak a language other than English and 3% are of Indigenous parentage. This is a rural school with some advantaged students as well as many disadvantaged students and a dedicated principal and teachers. It costs the taxpayer $18,000 above the Gonski Resource Standard to educate a student at this school. The school receives approximately $300,000 from the federal government and approximately $1 million from the state government, $6,700 in fees and $48,600 from private fundraising. But the capital grants in the last three years have been only $118,000. All this public and private money is money well spent. The NAPLAN results of these disadvantaged students are just fine. So congratulations, Pyalong Primely. You are our great state school of the week.
0: Well, isn't that a lovely little story about Pyalong up there in the, in the north of uh, Melbourne and a lovely little rural community. It's really nice up there near Sunday Creek and so on. And lovely children lovely parents and tremendous teachers. But our time is gone, and if you want to find out more about the dogs, then you can go to our website at www.headogs.info, or you can go to the 3CR website if you want to hear any more of our programs. Our time is gone, and from Dale and Sorrel and Jeff...
4: lake city joe says i am standing by my bed they framed you on a murder charge says joe but i'm dead says joe but i'm dead the copper bosses killed.
0: And myself, uh, it's and it again, of course, it's bye for now.
1: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.
3: For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.